3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR on 8.55am. The time is 7 in the morning. How are we all doing today? Good morning, Genevieve. How are you? I'm well, Zoya. Yeah, getting there, ticking along. How are you? I am good and I'm all the better for a super, super special guest appearance that we have. She is, oh, she is one of Tuesday Breakfast's greatest, greatest alumnas. It is Anya. Good morning, Anya. How are you? Good morning, guys. I'm good. How are you? Uh, pretty, pretty well, I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows anymore? Yeah. <laughs> what is time? What is, yeah. What is anything anymore? Yeah. What is, what is anything? We've gone from like, what is time to what is anything? Mm-hmm. What is reality? <laughs> what is reality? Uh, a construct. No. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a construct. No, no. It's good. It's good. You know, I think I'm, um, I've started doing, I'm doing a, uh, a step challenge this September to raise money um, for charity. And so it means that I have to do at least 10,000 steps a day and it's forcing me to actually use my hour of exercise and also exercise at home. And well now two hours from this week and that is helping so much fresh air, spring sunshine, all the cherry blossoms out in the trees. Mm. May I suggest an alternative? Um, Get a dog. And then you'll have <laughs> you'll be guilted into walking it every day. Pretty much. Yeah. That, I mean, that is the biggest piece of news that we have with Anya coming on the show. She's come on solely to talk about the fact that she got a dog. My dog, yes. I mean, don't now don't tell Madison, but I think I think I might be building more of an attachment to your dog than I am to hers because I haven't seen Phil for a while. But oh. uh, but. We won't let Madison know. Thank Hopefully right. she won't listen in. Until she listens to Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good plan, Zoya. Yeah, I'll tell her to start listening to the show from about three minutes in, and that mm-hmm. way she won't hear me give that secret away. All right, <laughs> yep. Block Phil's ears. <laughs> oh, okay. No, now I feel bad. No, I love them equally. They are both amazing in two very different ways because Apu is like one of the smallest dogs in the world and Phil is one of the biggest dogs in the world and it's just amazing. Well, anyway, we have quite a packed show coming up and I mean packed. I mean, I was talking to Genevieve about it earlier and she's going, oh, we might have so many things I can only fit one song in, which is just... I know. I'm I'm hoping we get to fit everything in, but we'll see how we go. Um, truly, truly excellent. But before we get into what we have on the show today, the reason we have Anya on is to talk about a fantastic, special Tuesday breakfast event that is coming up next week. Anya, why are you here? Tell us about it. Why am I here? Why am I here? 
Why are any of us here? (laughs) (laughs) We're all here generally to um, solve the issue of racism. But uh, this particular event is about media diversity. Now, your listeners might be aware of the report that was produced by Media Diversity Australia, um, I want to say maybe a month ago, or maybe even two months. Like I said, what is time? Um, And Media Diversity Australia is a not-for-profit um, group that's set up of journalists and you know people in the media generally to uh, drum up more diversity in the media and have more conversations about race and racism and that sort of thing. They released this report that had really stark statistics about diversity in television news and current affairs media. Um, I encourage your listeners to actually have a read of the report, but some of the key findings are that more than 75% of presenters, commentators and reporters have an Anglo-Celtic background compared to just 6% having an Indigenous or non-European background. And 77% of respondents with with culturally diverse backgrounds believe their backgrounds are a barrier to career progression. Big numbers, but nothing very surprising because I think, you know, even Tuesday breakfast, we've talked a lot about how the media is not representative of us as a community. And we've been talking about it for ages before such a report came out. But having that sort of in-your-face black and white finding has been quite... um, quite alarming. So we, as Tuesday Breakfast, have decided to do something about it. Um, and so we're launching this panel event on the 24th of September. It's called Classroom to Newsroom. And it's basically about the institutional barriers that stand in the way of such media diversity. And as the title suggests, we're going to be talking about how it starts from the classroom, so from educational settings. Um, and just a huge shout out to Ayan Sharwa, who does Women on the Line and Diaspora Blues on 3CR. She talks about this a lot, about how, for example, students, um, you know, from a very young age, if they're of a different colour or of a different community, they're sort of told that there are only certain careers they can aspire to and certain types of dreams that they can achieve. And that then sets them up on a certain path compared to people who are not told that. And obviously that happens to a very specific group of people. And as a result, we often don't see those people in the newsroom and we don't see those stories reflected in the media. So we're gonna be talking about why that is and how that starts from such a young age and how that follows through all through education to university. Then when you actually get to the newsroom, the sort of microaggressions you have to face and the racism that you face and how that stops people of colour and First Nations folks from progressing from there on. So, yeah, that's a long introduction to what would be a very um, enlightening panel. I cannot wait, cannot wait to uh, listen in on that panel. It's going to be so, so good. And Anya, you are doing this as part of a Democracy in Colour Fellowship, am I right? That's right. So I completed a six-month Democracy in Colour Fellowship. Um, It's a great organisation. It's a racial campaigning organisation. And they do this fellowship every year. They bring a group of people of colour together and train us in campaigning tactics. So everything from digital campaigning to fundraising to framing, media, messaging, et cetera, et cetera, big words. Um, And so as part of that project, you're encouraged to think of a longer strategic campaign that you'd like to focus on. And it just seemed right that the report came out at the time when um, I was also talking about this to Ayan as part of Women on the Line, um, another show that I do. And it just came together and we thought, why not? Let's have this panel. 
Fantastic. So the panel is next week, 24th of September. If people want to find out about it, we'll of course spruik it on our social medias, which uh, you know have been somewhat dormant during the pandemic, but I'm very excited to get back onto them. Um, but uh, if people want to find out anything more, is there an event um, link up yet? Or Yeah, there'll be one today um, on Facebook. Possibly an Eventbrite um, link. I can't promise anything, though, depending on how, <laughs> how the day goes. But there will definitely be a Facebook event. There'll be a Zoom link. So it's going to be an online event. People can tune in. Um, they can stay anonymous. No one's expected to say or do anything. Just tune in, listen to the speakers. I don't want to give too much details about who's actually going to be on the panel, but it will be all on the Facebook page. Very exciting panel. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm very excited. Mm. Fantastic. And it's totally free as well, obviously, because we are 3CR and we are all about accessible free media. Um, so, and, and speaking paid. of... Yeah. Pardon, sorry, Anya? And we don't get paid. So uh. <laughs> No, no, we don't get paid. We do this out of the goodness and um, excitement of our own hearts mm -hmm. <laughs> and desire to change the world. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Exactly. Anya, thank you so much for that fantastic um, spruiking of the show because of the panel session, because there's absolutely no way I could have done that justice or any of us could have. It's, it's a special gift of yours. So that is wonderful. And we Thanks. will, of course, be um, airing that panel session once it's recorded. It will then become part of a special Tuesday breakfast show um, probably the following week. So for those of you who can't dial in on Thursday, the 24th of September and engage live and ask questions and that kind of thing, you'll be able to listen in um, at a, on, a following, on a following show. So um, plenty of opportunities. Amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. And speaking of show, we have, as I said, jam-packed show coming up. Um, I had a amazing amazing conversation with um a fantastic writer shuling chua um it was a wonderful just gentle rambling 30 minute chat about a collection of essays that she is going to be publishing through some kind of press this year and it's a just a really wonderful chat about identity and fashion and water and music and um, chinese identity and it was really really great um, on top of that, Lauren had a chat with Franco Stevens, founder of Curve magazine, and Jen Rainin, co-director of Ahead of the Curve documentary, about their new film, which is being screened at the Queer Film Fest in Sydney. They discussed intergenerational queer history and community, the importance of visibility, and what the documentary hopes to achieve. The program and tickets for the festival can be found at queerscreen.org.au. And um, yeah, you'll hear more about that during the show. Genevieve, what else do we have? Yeah, so we've got the last uh, track of the Underfoot series we've been playing for the last four weeks. Uh, if you haven't tuned into the Underfoot series, it's an amazing um, series of virtual tours by Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian, uncovering the secret histories of Footscray. Uh, the two old friends, they're both longtime Footscray residents, um, bring an intimate lens to local history and they travel through the archives looking for people like themselves, uh, focusing on queers, migrants, radicals and artists. Uh, this track four is called Vice Hole. Uh, uh, the title for it is Undercover of Darkness, Queers, Christians, Drinkers, Firefighters, Communists, MPs and Chinese Laundry Workers Spar Over Who's a Worker and Who's a Threat. 
the battleground for solidarity is right here underfoot. It's just been a fabulous series, that one. So I'm super excited for everyone to hear the last track. And also, if we do have time, um, I did do an interview um, with Sunny Lennon, who's a local... A photographer in Melbourne here, she's been doing a series of photo photographs for um, uh, as part of lockdown and we have a chat about uh, what, it, what it's like to be a creative in times of pandemics and how her creativity and her art has uh, helped her uh, get through the pandemic as well. So that was a really nice chat. Hopefully we have time, but we'll see how we go. And if not, of course, we'll play it next week and give it all the space it deserves because Definitely. that sounds like a beautiful interview. Definitely. Well, that sounds great. Can't wait to get on with the show. And um, I hope everyone has a wonderful day. I hope the sun is shining. Who knows? Because we are recording this the day before, but I am going to cross my fingers and say I hope the sun is shining for everyone, that you get outside, get some fresh air and stay safe. Have a good day. Absolutely. You too, Zoya.
That was a track by Blood Orange titled Best To You and it was on his third debut album, Freetown Sound. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah and Ms. Hibafala. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS Australia is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a 3CR supporter. So you are joining us on 3CR Community Radio. You're with me, Lauren, and I'm so excited to be joined this morning by, uh, well, documentary subject, but um, if I can say legendary lesbian, Franco Stevens, and uh, the co-director <laughs> of the fantastic new documentary, um, Jen Raymond. Uh, the reason I'm interviewing the two of you is because the Queer Screen Film Fest is running online this year usually based in Sydney, but it's running uh, very pandemic friendly online from the 17th to the 27th of September. And they are showing 29 Australian films. And you can go to www.queerscreen.org.au for the program and to buy tickets. And now to Franco and Jen, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having us. I think this, you know, I I know we are feeling the effects of not being able to be there, but Sydney is near and dear to my heart. So if I could have picked one place to go, it would have been there. Yeah, we will. Yeah, I think you'd better. Everybody will be waiting. (laughs) Um, So I guess I thought it might be a good place to start for listeners who haven't heard of Curve magazine before or don't know much about the subject matter of the documentary. Can you tell us all about this fantastic publication, how it began, why you saw the need for it, and how it's sort of grown into what it is today? (laughs) Sure, just a little bit of a brief uh, history. Curve was founded as Deneuve Magazine in 1991. The first issue came out. Um, We we kept the name Deneuve until 1995, and then in 1996, we changed the name to Curve because of a a lawsuit, a trademark dispute. And um, Curve, uh, I guess, is the longest um, best-selling lesbian magazine in the world at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, in 2000, the magazine sold to um, Avalon Media, which is the publisher of um, LTL, Lesbians on the Loose. Mm-hmm. So it has a you know strong tie to Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a little bit about, hey, why did you start this magazine in the first place? Uh, what? <laughs> I started yeah. this magazine in the first place because I was tired of complaining that no one else was starting the publication that I wanted. Something <laughs> to tell me about the women in our community, the mm. news, the politics, the entertainment, the dish, the gossip, the rumors, the tidbits, the fashion, the... Um, 
you know, the, the expression of our life as full people, um, not just as sexual beings. Mm. And I wanted a guide for myself. And I also wanted to dispel the myth that, uh, you know, in order to be embraced by the uh, lesbian community, you needed to dress a certain way, cut your hair a certain way, um, act a certain way. I just really wanted to blow up those stereotypes, not only within our community, but externally. Mm. And the, the documentary really, um, that's so clear in the beginning. And then it takes this really beautiful, um, you know, when you start getting subscribers who live in small towns, who've, who don't think they've ever met a lesbian before, and are just saying, you saved my life. Like it's, it's phenomenal to see the reach that it had during that period, um, especially in the early days before, I guess, the internet. Um, it really grew into something so special. Yes, you know, uh, it was a different world back before the internet. You could live in a small town, think that you're the only one, but yet there was, you know, a woman a mile or two away from you and you would never, ever know. Mm, yeah. And you heard those stories. And I heard those stories and, you know, that, that really was one of the key reasons for me fighting through all the hard times is knowing that, you know, what we were doing at the magazine was so needed. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think so much about the movie is really about that visibility and, and why that's so needed. And I'm interested in your reflections and both of you, obviously, um, it seems so, like politics has almost come a bit full circle around the world. Um, the restrictions on queer rights are just, this is a horrifying time to be, to be queer, I guess, in the world all over again, maybe. And, um, but at the same time, we have this so, so many incredible queer publications now and out celebrities and out politicians. And, and so it's sort of this really interesting time. And I'm, I'm curious about your reflections on what place visibility has now in this world, in this climate. Well, I think it's even more important than ever. Um, mm. You know, our rights here in the United States are being stripped away. Mm. Um, let's face it, both of our countries are not run by the most progressive uh, leaders. Um, one being said, I would really like to have ours out in the next mm. couple of months. Um, I'm not a fan. And, um, yeah. and, you know, to stand together as a community as a whole is very important because there's strength in numbers. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so the making of the, uh, the documentary itself, what, what was the catalyst, Jen, for the decision to, to do this, to bring <laughs> this to life? Oh, wow. Well, I am a storyteller by nature. And uh, I, as, I, as my relationship with Franco deepened over the first years of our marriage and I learned more and more of her her backstory, I guess, of like, you know, how the magazine came to be and where she came from. And, um, I realized what a great story it is. I mean, it's just, it's a great story. And I thought, well, obviously this should be made into a fiction film. This is such a great mm -hmm. fiction film. I'll start writing the screenplay for this. And, uh, and researching for the screenplay, um, I, I just, I realized how little uh, really good source material there is um, on lesbians and queer women's history. We don't, we, we, there's a, the vast majority of queer focused films um, are centered on men and men's experiences. Mm. And 
I, I got, I started feeling a very deep uh, sense of responsibility to the community to document this story in a nonfiction format as a documentary film. Um, and I, 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 now I'm feeling, you know, I thought when I was starting to make the film, I thought, well, this is, this is really for women of our generation of, um, you know, women who came up with the magazine. This is, this is a story that will really resonate with them mostly. And while that has certainly been the case, um, what's been a really lovely uh, a story about, I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't realize what had come before. I, I didn't, I, I feel more connected now having, having watched this film um, to my community. And I, uh, that's, so rewarding that feels really good mm. so it's it's yeah it's the juice for me <laughs> that's absolutely what i was thinking watching it that really interesting scene where um there's a lot of younger queer people talking about whether queer or lesbian is the word and how that feels for them and people who are perhaps trans or gender non-conforming or concerned about cis men taking up the space using the word lesbian um just such a perfect illustration of why we need to hear more about that history and, and honor as, as younger queers, those who came before us and the, and the work that's already been done and why those words are so important. Um, yeah, but also to give a lot of hope to the older generation. I mean, that, that was a big part of um, my desire to, to reach out to the younger generation was in having these, uh, these, these interviews, these questions, this the question answer sessions with, um, older lesbians, there was a, there's a lot of grief and a lot of uh, feeling like they're 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 dying breed that they're disappearing that you know young women don't want to be identified as lesbian anymore and 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 there's a sort of folding in and then as we went out and uh, and spoke with younger folks, um, I don't know just to see that there is still so much. Um, activism, so many inspired and inspiring young women who are picking up uh, where Franco, you know, picking the baton up and running the next mile with it. It's, it feels really good. That, and also I think it was a surprise to me and to a lot of our, our friends really that um, we're seeing young women identifying as lesbian again. It's, mm. it, there was a period of time where it was very much uh, out, but it it's it feels as though we're reclaiming the word, mm. and we're understanding now more, and I think more through intergenerational conversation, like what I'm hoping that this documentary will inspire um, more of, that uh, that <laughs> now <laughs> you're like you yeah yeah. But that, you know, that, that how I choose to identify, the word I choose, doesn't take away from the way that you choose to identify. If anything, it makes it stronger. So if I choose to, be, uh, to call myself a lesbian, you choose to call yourself a queer woman and whatever, it, it doesn't mean that I'm excluding you. It just means that this is how I identify. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Franco, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, you know... Uh, I am pretty, um, I, I'm pretty accepting of all terms myself, like mm -hmm. as far as what I go by is less important, but I think that 
you know, keeping the word lesbian as an option as in our vocabulary and embracing it is, is important. Mm. Yeah. Um, I actually don't have much time left because we have, <laughs> yeah, it has to be a very short interview, unfortunately, but um, I just wanted to ask, um, do you feel that the film, um, or in the responses you've had, it seems like you feel like it's achieved something that you wanted it to. Um, what do you hope that it brings to the international audience? What do you hope our viewers take away from it in Australia? My hope for it internationally, for sure, is that it really does spur those intergenerational conversations, mm. that, um, that audiences of all ages see it and are inspired to connect with community and, and, and understand that by, you know, standing with each other, we really are much stronger. My hope for it is that uh, more Australian uh, women realize that Curve is there for them. Mm -hmm. You know, the magazine is based in Sydney now. And I don't think, you know, everyone knows that. Mm. So my, my greatest thing is that I hope w women take away is that, you know, this publication is in your backyard. Mm. Yeah. Um, so ahead of the okay, ahead of the curve <laughs> is screening at the Queer Screen Film Festival uh, in Sydney, but online this year. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, they call you a documentary subject, but uh, founder of Curve Magazine, Franco Stevens, and the co-director of the film, Jen Raymond. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye. Take care. Bye.
was a tune by Liv titled You, the One Fish in the Sea. And this is from her new album released in at the end of July of this year uh, called Couldn't Wait to Tell You. It's a great album and I do recommend uh, people go and have a look at it. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
love that song. It was by ESG, titled Dance, and I love playing ESG. It's an all-girls band formed uh, in the Bronx in America in 1978, and some of their tunes are just so much fun. You really want to get up and dance to them. I am speaking with Shuling Chua, who is a amazing writer whose work I absolutely adore and I am so excited that I get to speak with her and also call her one of my friends. So this is really fantastic. Good morning, Shuling. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Zoya. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm really, really excited to be chatting with you today and thank you so much for reading my work and inviting me to chat about it. I'm, I'm so excited, honestly. I'd be doing this even if it wasn't for an interview. Um, as well, you know, because we've already spent half an hour talking about the book before I even pressed record on this interview. <laughs> so I, I am very, very excited, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. We're here to speak about a collection of essays that um, you have put together and that are going to be published. But before we start about that, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yep. Um, so... My name's Shuling. I have been writing for about five years now. Um, and this, well, we're here today to chat about my debut essay collection, Echoes. Um, a lot of my work focuses on image, memory, lineages. Um, and I guess a lot of these themes do pop up in the book. So we'll obviously talk about all these things in a little bit more detail. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing I might mention is that this year I've started writing a little bit of poetry, um, but I guess essays are my main main sort of artistic form. I do also write um, literary criticism as well. Mm, mm, I just, oh, I, I've, I actually read some of your essays before I met you and then it was just such a kind of discombobulating experience and then like meet this person who writes this stuff that I thought was just so amazing. Um, and it took me a while to put two and two together I think and then I realized I was like oh my god I've read your work before this is incredible um so yes for those of you out there who have not read Shuling's work you must go out and chase it down even before this book is published it is fantastic um <laughs> but speaking about this collection of essays Echoes that is shortly to be published through what is the name of the publisher um some kind some kind press some kind press, wonderful. Um, what is this collection of essays about, I suppose? Yeah, so it's um, a collection of three essays. Um, first one is on fashion and it's titled Im Immaterial Inheritances. Um, and I guess inheritance, inheritances and lineages is something I've been particularly interested in this year um, because I guess, I don't know, thinking about motherhood and, and the fact that I've, I decided a few years ago that I don't intend to become a mother. So I'm just sort of really conscious about the future and not having someone to hand things down to, but also thinking about it from the other direction too. So the things I have inherited from my mother and from my grandmother, which some of them I'm aware of and some of them um, a little bit more unconscious. So that's largely what the whole collection is about like thinking about the things we have inherited unconsciously uh, the second essay is on old chinese pop music and uh, film 
and again memories. And then the last essay is about water and washing machines and movement. And I think it's um, very quirky because often people um, kind of laugh when I tell them I've been writing an essay about washing machines. But I think there's something super um, comforting and soothing in hearing the sound of the wash cycle. And obviously I use that as a leaping point to look at bigger ideas such as, as I mentioned, um, movement and I guess the, the importance and symbolism of water in our lives. Mm, yeah, very evocative. Um, these essays, uh, you know, having read some of your other pieces, which are, I guess, more about relationships outside of family or outside of those kinds of ideas and motifs. Um, these essays are very different to some of your previous work. So why, why have you kind of taken this leap into a different into a different focus and I suppose also why do you think it might be that, that it's this work that is your first published collection as opposed to some of your more um, established themes? Um, yeah so I think for me writing is a way to work through questions so obviously whatever questions are in my life at that point in time will shape and inform my work so when I first started writing um, had a lot of questions about sex and sort of um, was writing a lot from a place of um, pain and trauma and so a lot of my earlier work I would say is is dark but and sad um, not necessarily written from a place of anger but definitely written um, from a place of sadness whereas my more recent work um, now that I've worked through a lot of those previous questions I had um, to be honest, it actually took quite a while to make that shift. Like it took me maybe one, two years to learn how to write about happiness and to learn how to, um, I guess, a lot of my, my more recent work now is uh, looking at the images and ideas and um, texts or films that or pop songs that keep coming back to me and sort of really being curious about why do these... Um, images or songs hold so much um i don't know so much meaning for me and i'm teasing that that so that's sort of more my approach to writing now which um, i think has meant that this essay collection i keep telling people is definitely written from a place of love um, and celebrating joy and celebrating the people who are important to me in my life um, so yeah that's it's a bit of a shift but i think they're also, I guess, yeah, there are some things that have remained the same. Like I'm always, I've always been really interested in uh, memory. So I feel like that's something that stayed with me. But yeah, it's a quite a different tone and space that I'm writing from now. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I can really sense that in the collection, the, the sort of warmth and it's reading, when I was reading it, it felt it was interesting and engaging. You can see the points of potential, um, you know, it's little moments of pain that pop up, but in a way where it's pain that's engaged with and thought about. And in the end, it feels like everything's like a warm hug. There is something very, very, um, yeah, I mean, towards the end of it, you use imagery of, of um, uh, shimmeringness and gold. And I can really feel that in the whole 
in the whole collection of essays it's it's very comforting yet also engaging yeah. um it's it's not it's not gentle by any means but it's absolutely um warm yeah i yeah anyway i'm gonna just wax lyrical no, about won't. it but <laughs> no please um warmth yeah i mean the essays were written during winter um and yeah there are lots of images of drinking hot water bathtubs um so yeah Mm, you can definitely feel that. So you know, you, you talk about memory being a big, a big part of it, and exploring questions. And it really feels like an overarching theme is the different ways that you're trying to reach across time, um, either backwards or even sometimes forwards, um, to connect with or better understand your place in the world as part of a diaspora. And you're using it. It seems like um, you know to put words in your mouth um, it seems like you use it through some key motifs of things like maternal relationships and like you said fashion music and and water what is it about those key those motifs that allow you or, or why do you use them as a way to engage with that that question of your place in the world yeah um i guess chinese identity is something i have i had started thinking about a little bit more recently like I think over the last few years because growing up in Australia um, you're often labeled as Asian um, and that is there's a level of like solidarity and comfort and community that comes with that broad label but also in that broad label there's also an element of erasure because being Chinese or Philippine next or Vietnamese they're all such different identities and histories and cultures and languages that it's I guess it can be limiting to um, sort of, I don't know, use the umbrella term of Asian. Um, and I think the other thing is my parents are Malaysian Chinese and that again, it's another different community and culture within the huge Chinese diaspora. Um, so I think when it comes to talking about identity and politics and culture, like you can take a very academic objective lens, um, you know, that is what, you know, some people or journalistic lens, I guess, but that's not really, that the, that's not really the way I write or what I'm interested in. Like I'm really interested in the small details and the personal details. And so I think with this essay collection, I've started off, I guess the huge spark was um, watching Crazy Rich Asians and um, falling in love with the soundtrack and then working backwards from there, um, learning about the histories of the songs because many of the songs on the soundtrack are actually songs from the 1930s and 1950s, 60s, um, also to think possibly the 80s or 90s as well, as well as some modern songs. So I think, um, yeah, I feel uh it's more easy to access i guess culture or history when you have a personal connection to it um and i guess yeah that's sort of the pathway i took um i um i did i had hoped to actually visit china this year but obviously with COVID 19 that plan was not possible and i knew that very on very early on in this this year so um, a lot of this book has researched through YouTube and Spotify and yeah. 
I can sort of see that there's, when you talk about that, there's this idea of, you know, because you can't access the, the actual physicality of going to China and being in China. You talk about having taken a trip to Hong Kong and trying to go and find a hotel that, that appeared in a, in a, in a, in a, in a story that you read and, and, and trying to actually exist in that space and feel the, the, the physicality of being in that space. Or, you know, you, you talk about um, trying to find out where, where the village is that your, I think your great, great grandmother um, had, had come from and not really being able to find that exact location. But you can see that, that reaching out for physical connection. And I can sense that then experiencing it through things like clothes, which you wear and you talk about the feel of the clothes or 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 music which you hear and, and you and, and sits inside you um in a way like you know sound and music the memories that can come up from it without even realizing that you've listened to it before you referenced that as well i don't want to give too much away from the book or, or the feeling of water like being being enclosed by water um those or the, the warmth of drinking hot water like you you, you talk about um yeah it's like an embodied reaching out of trying to recreate an experience or feel an experience that you that is denied to you by you know the fact that we can't travel at the moment does that kind of feel like an accurate representation yeah that's totally um a, a huge question in the book and i think another thing is i do want to um acknowledge the complicated feelings of that sense of longing and nostalgia like I don't um I think it's very dangerous to romanticize the past and to romanticize the motherland um to which you know doesn't necessarily um belong to you and then you're I'm um a lot of what I kind of write about in the book is sort of the tensions within forgetting and remembering and like, I guess, longing is, uh, there's so many complicated feelings wrapped up in that it's not a simple case of wishing for the past or wishing that things were like they were in the past. Or I think a, a lot, I, I do not acknowledge there are certain things that just can't be reached and can't be attained because, you know, it's history. It's, um, so yeah. They're definitely huge questions, um, and I obviously, you know, don't think I'm going to answer them in the, you know, nine thousand words. But it's something I'll keep thinking about for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you talk about huge questions, and there's one huge question that you pose in, um, in the second essay, Echoes, which is the one that that, that engages with, um, you know, Chinese pop music through your your watching of Crazy Rich Asians, and um, uh, it's just the, the quote just sat with me so intensely like for me personally as well who's you know I'm also part of a of a diaspora but you know from India and and, and Kenya so I can sort of relate to an extent without generalizing too much but there are some some experiences from diasporic communities yeah. um, and it's it's this question can one physically unknowingly inherit memories knowledge trauma joy um, you've touched on it a bit but I wonder if we can unpick more like what you mean by that and how it I guess relates to the the themes in the collection yeah um so I think there are specific examples of um unconsciously inheriting joy so the fact that my great my grandparents loved listening to music and went out dancing 
Um, my grandmother, Amma, she loves fashion and like, you know, makeup. And so I think there's some examples of joy, which I have inherited unconsciously because it's not like my grandma, so, you know, sat down with me and said, hey, I really love fashion and here are some clothes you can now inherit from me. Like that has never happened. Um, kind of interesting, a lot of the stories that I know about my grandmother aren't directly told to me. Like they've been my mum, they have stories that my mum has told me. Um, so in that sense, I guess they're unconsciously um, passed down because I wouldn't have known about my grandma's connection with the songs Boyani, um, the I, like I wouldn't have known that my grandmother loved this song unless my mum told me. Um, then I guess trauma is probably a trickier one because um, there's, there's this one image in uh, the last essay, the water essay, where um, my great-grandmother was, um, she clutches this empty tin of oil. I mean, obviously there's no oil in it, but like she clutches this empty tin and cries because the oil has leaked over the journey from Malaysia to China. Like the oil was sent back to her and all the cooking oil leaked. And when my mom first told me this story several years ago, it stuck with me, but I never knew what to do with it. Like it kind of sat in my drafts folder and it is a very um, sad, devastating image. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like all of the things that I will never know about this woman. She's like, the like, you know, in in terms of family memory, she's like the one that we, I only, uh, this is as far back as it goes. Like, I don't know anything about the generation before her. Um, And yeah, in putting, in writing about this image in my essay, I don't know if uh, doing it justice is not the right word. I can't, I don't know what the right term is, but I'm very conscious of all the ways. life was so much harder in the past but then also in some ways it was simpler too because they didn't have to deal with social media or many of like the political issues that we are dealing with now so um i'm not i feel like i'm answering your question in a very indirect way Zoya. but um yeah i guess i don't know maybe you have some thoughts too on this but no i can i can, <laughs> I can completely a... see what you mean by that and and i and um forgive me I had I had a book club last night so I'm, I'm very much in the sort of like let's unpick motifs and metaphors and, and, and imagery <laughs> but but that that image of um your is it your, your great-grandmother clutching great-great-grandmother um, great-great-grandmother clutching this this oil that I think that also feeds into what you're saying about nostalgia and memory it's like it's this it's this trace like the 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 the, the can is empty it's completely leaked out but the can is still there and there's still trace bits of oil in it and and it's like you're almost touching it like you're almost touching the existence of that oil of that memory of that experience but 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 not quite and there's nostalgia is so deeply imbued with um loss and with mm-hmm. and with um, even almost like a sense of grieving it's, it's like inherent mm-hmm. to nostalgia it's always it's always tinged with sadness and and it's like that that image almost captures nostalgia and especially I suppose nostalgia for diasporas where you know you you lose a huge part of the culture that you 
you know that, that your that your antecedents <laughs> had um, and it's like how much of it is yours and how much of it can you grasp but it's just so I guess to be really blunt about it so slippery <laughs> um, like I don't know like that image that image just really holds all of that and when you talk about it in that way that's what came to me um, really mm -hmm. beautiful image I want to reread this, the essay now just to kind of see <laughs> that again and unpick that um, yeah really yeah. really lovely um, yeah it's a question, I think, um, the quote that you read out, Zoya, I think, yeah, it is a question for everyone. Um, you know, I don't pretend to be able to answer it. <laughs> That's why it's a rhetorical question. Um, yeah, but I mean, and that also connects with just the whole, you know, idea of intergenerational, um, you know, if we're going to look at the trauma side of things um, and not think about the, the joy that you talk about, but intergenerational trauma or just the fact that we do hold memories, you know, physically in our bodies through DNA or through whatever, as well as just, yeah, stories and experiences that get passed down and become part of us. Um, and I think it's really beautiful that you're using these stories that you've taken from your family and you're giving them new life and making sure that they they persist, I suppose. It's, it's really, I'm gonna take a bit of a, a turn in the conversation. And there, there's something that, that struck me when I was reading the piece. Um, when I was reading the essays and that's the fact that when you use you use Chinese characters a lot um when you're using Chinese words uh, or like you know in either in either like you know Mandarin or Cantonese um but you use that you use Chinese characters instead of you know Latin script mm -hmm. and you don't you translate it once and then you leave it to the reader to refer back or remember those characters which you know for me as someone who who can't read um, Chinese characters at all was, you know, a, 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 an added um, effort to be made or how you have to engage actively with, with the piece. Um, why did you choose to do that, I suppose? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I loved so, it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've, I also do love reading texts in which um, languages haven't been translated into English. Um, so it was again a, a very conscious choice of mine to not translate the majority of lyrics um, and to not, and to um, where I refer to a song title again later in the piece, I will use the Chinese characters as opposed to the phonetic pronunciation or pinyin. Um, because part of the essay is a lot of, is um, very much informed by my um i guess efforts in the other direction so i have to work harder when it comes to reading um or singing in cantonese or mandarin uh and i think so for example i might be trying to read a line and i might be able to pick out 70 percent of the characters and there are all these little bit c's and gaps in my linguistic comprehension i guess like uh so i think i also want to give that same sense of feeling to english readers so that when they um, encountered my work they could perhaps get that feeling of things just beyond their linguistic um comprehension like just to give that sense of um I don't know, confusion or maybe unease. Unease could be taking it a little bit too far, but yeah, that sense of not knowing. I feel like there's a huge sense of humility when you realise that, you know, English is not the only language in the world 
And I think it's important to remember that and to remain humble um, and acknowledge that, yeah. I thought that that really demonstrated that and and I don't know it kind of felt like you were playing with sort of like power dynamics in in reading and for readers and like you said for people who are English readers they they expect everything to be sort of handed to them as opposed to just trying to explore it you know you have to actually make that added effort and make that step and, and learn and it I think it connects quite closely with um the sort of idea of translation and changing comes up a lot in talking about the the different pop songs because some of them are pop songs that are translations from or, or adaptations of um, uh, English or American pop songs and then they get translated back and the meaning shifts and the the tone and the intent of the songs shift and the relationship and I, I thought that was really I just really like the way that kind of like came through as well and those realizations is really Mm -hmm. Lovely. Yeah, there's such an um, interesting history of um, yeah the Chinese music industry taking uh, American or English pop songs and just transforming the meaning completely. Um, I mean, like the lyrics change completely, but yeah, the the, the melody is still the same. Um, and yeah, so it's funny. I have a deeper connection with the Cantonese version of um, Madonna's Material Girl than the Madonna song itself. <laughs> I love that. I need to go off and listen to that now. <laughs> I feel like I actually went onto a YouTube spiral um, when reading, read, I kept like jumping away from the essay to Google all different songs and listen to yeah. them while you were writing about them to kind of really, I think there's something really lovely about music, especially and having music and then having the internet means that you can actually experience what you're experiencing when you're writing and, and almost connect with you as an author in, in a multimodal way through an essay. <laughs> and there was something that it was almost like that, I had that embodied experience with you. And it was really, um, it was really powerful, which I think in these COVID times is a nice thing to be able to do, is connect across, yeah. across spaces with people. That's so great. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a line as well in the essay where my mom says, I'm really glad you enjoyed this song because it's kind of giving them new life. and. I guess, yeah, I'm sharing the songs with you, Zoya, and everyone else now. <laughs> oh, it was just wonderful. Anyway, we could talk about, like I said at the beginning of this interview, we could talk about this for hours, but um, <laughs> perhaps we should leave it to people to go out and buy this collection of essays when they, when they get published and read them because it, they are just a lovely, gentle, um, powerful piece of um, writing to connect with in these uncertain times um so if people want to read this book it isn't it isn't yet published but it will be um soon-ish um when sort of do we expect it to come out and how can people pre-order their copies yeah so um the book can be pre-ordered um at, at the some kind press website so that's www.somekind s-o-m-e kind k-i-n-d press.com um, so that's, and uh, it's part of a series um, titled Raw. So there's another book that was announced the same time as mine, which is called Stitched by Kim um, Trisby, Trisby. And that's about fashion and beauty and bodies. Um, so it's kind of interesting because the two books kind of, I think, talk to one another. Um, and in terms of when it will be available, I think we're expecting um, they'll be printed towards the end of the year. So 
in round about November, I think, and hopefully people will receive their copies at that, you know, November, December. And yeah, so please, please um, pre-order um, if you're interested in reading more about uh, sort of the ideas that Zoe and I've been chatting about today. Great, um, great Christmas present for people. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah, it's a very much a celebration of family um, and and sort of memories. Yeah, it really so, is. Yeah, and if people want Christmas to hear party. more from you or about you specifically, Shuling, how can they find you on all the social medias? Yeah, so um, I'm Hello Pollyanna on um, Twitter. That's one word. And uh, in terms of my website, it's hellopollyanna.blogspot.com. Um, so you can find all of my, well, not all, but most of my writing um, on, on that website. Fantastic. Shuling Chua, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was the absolute highlight of my week. And I hope the highlight of other people's weeks to listen to our rambling conversation. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks so much Zoe, for reading um, my work so deeply and asking just such beautiful questions and just really getting to the heart of what I was trying to achieve um, with this book. So I really, really treasure this conversation. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
a remix of Joyce Rice's song Good Morning and it was remixed by M Design. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Up next, we've got our last instalment of the Underfoot series. This series is a virtual audio tour by Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian, uncovering the secret histories of Footscray. The two old friends, both longtime Footscray residents, bring an intimate lens to local history as they travel through the archives, looking for people like themselves, queers, migrants, radicals, and artists. This is track four, titled Vice Hole. Under cover of darkness, queers, Christians, drinkers, firefighters, communists, MPs, and Chinese laundry workers spar over who's a worker and who's a threat. The battleground for solidarity is right here, underfoot. Okay, so the Napier Street Toilet is a pestilent vice hole stuck in the middle of Footscray said Councillor Bill Kelly in a 1959 Footscray Council meeting. He said it was an educational centre for perverts of the future. He said he wanted it blown up. The toilets were shut down, but they weren't blown up. They're right here on a nature strip in what's now called Mechanics Way. There's nothing here, though. All right, well, that's because they're underground toilets. The council shut their doors and filled them in and planted grass over the top. And most people forgot they were ever here. But they are still here, pretty much intact. Underfoot. When they were built in 1936, toilets were often put underground for decency. The idea was that nobody should have to actually see the toilets. But there was this tension. Privacy around bodily functions is decent, is respectable. But when there's too much privacy, that creates perverts. And a vice hole. So when they say perverts, do they mean queers? I mean, I assume so, but it's kind of hard to tell. I guess in historical sources, it's often really hard to tell what people mean by indecency or obscenity or perversion. I mean, it could be something to do with queerness, or it could be pissing in the street, or it could be sexual assault. It's this undifferentiated blob of sexual transgression. Yeah, and it's sad as a, as a queer person um, going through the archives. You know that queer people have always existed, but it's hard to find unambiguous evidence of that. And When you do, it's often tied to this idea that we're inherently a sexual threat. It's depressing, honestly. That's so often the case with history, though, isn't it? I feel that looking at the White Australia Policy photo archives as well, and even reading court records, often we can only find ourselves in the archives because of criminality, because of policing. The only documentation you have is from these hostile encounters with the state. It's bittersweet. Which brings us to another ambiguously queer incident in local history. So looking straight across the street from here, you can see a modern-ish building housing the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. But in 1908, that site was a venue for hire called Federal Hall, where a number of single-sex balls were held. 
The first few were for women. There were costume balls with half the guests dressed as men, and they would romance the guests dressed as women. And that got mocked by Punch, a culture magazine. But when Footscray men decided to have a men-only ball, Punch was like, all right, this is not a joke anymore. They started using language like, we can only have sniggering contempt for the men who would participate in such a thing. The Footscray media didn't take the Punch article that seriously. They reprinted the whole thing with this introduction that was basically, get a load of these guys, doing everything so seriously. I really enjoyed that, the um, OK Boomer energy of the Footscray Papers response. So these balls were queer, right? I mean, you'd have to assume for some participants, yeah, they were. But it was all in this kind of realm of plausible deniability. Right up until the post-war period, drag in Australia was completely mainstream entertainment. It was seen by most people as just costume, nothing to do with sexuality or gender identity. You have to remember as well that drag performers were often part of variety shows that included minstrel performers and yellow face acts and Jewish impersonators, that kind of thing. That's something that's really important to highlight here, that racist mocking element historically to this kind of theatre and play. Yeah, wow. I mean, I guess you still sometimes see that in drag. Yeah, you do. And the same sex balls were like that too. People weren't just in drag, they were playing a role, having a laugh. So if you were actually using this role play to try out a different gender or sexual role in a maybe more sincere way, you could hide in plain sight. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of hiding in plain sight in all of these stories. If we go up Nicholson Street a bit from here, there's a park you can enter on your right just before the railway bridge. That's Railway Reserve. In 1942, Moira James, the first ever female organiser for the Munition Workers' Union, organised a rally in Railway Reserve of munition factory workers who were predominantly young women. Moira was also a communist. The local MP, a Labour Party man called Jack Mullins, described her as a communist Amazon, strong in physique, but doubtful in her femininity. And talking about Moira's work organising young women factory workers, Mullins said, a decent, refined, unsophisticated girl suddenly finds herself in an environment due to the war, working in an industry where she can be bossed, body and soul, by a domineering creature such as Moira James. God, he really attacks her as this predatory butch character. It's pretty wild. I would love it if she was actually a lesbian, but we have no real evidence either way. Um, it's basically just an attempt to use homophobia to discredit her as an organiser. It's interesting how he sort of projects worker exploitation onto the union organiser too, boss to body and soul. Like, we all know this kind of attack, the way it paints her as not a real woman, but instead a threat to women. Obviously, that happens a lot to trans women, butch women, black women, intersex women, even now. You see it in the transphobic debates around toilets. You see it in women's sport. It's this idea that you have to exclude all these women to protect real women. There's a very specific type of woman who's worthy of protection, and usually it's not a real woman. It's a mythical figure of frailty that's weaponized against people of color, against trans and intersex people, against women who aren't sufficiently feminine. The real woman is a hypothetical woman. Which is an idea that's often promoted by women themselves, uh, particularly white women, that women, white women, are the pure, respectable, moral guardians of the community as a whole. Which brings us to the temperance movement. 
So if we go through Railway Reserve and over the railway tracks onto Leeds Street, near the corner of Leeds and Paisley, you can see a building that's currently a mobile phone store. That building was once Temperance Hall, the headquarters of the anti-alcohol movement in Footscray in the late 19th century. This was a really popular movement, especially with women. That's kind of surprising given that so many of the early buildings in Footscray were pubs. Yeah, the temperance movement was not popular with everyone. During the peak of the temperance movement, there were two firefighting brigades in Footscray, and one was sponsored by local pubs, and one was exclusively for non-drinkers. One time they both arrived at the same fire on Barclay Street, which is just up ahead, but there was only one fire hydrant on the street. They had a full-on street brawl over who'd get to use the hydrant. Um, one guy cracked his skull and nearly died. That's how much drinkers and non-drinkers hated each other's guts. A lot of the people that the temperance advocates came into conflict with were socialists. Footscray was obviously a working class community, and it was a heavy drinking one. And many temperance advocates looked at that situation and said, what we need to address here is the drinking. If people would just keep themselves nice, maybe they wouldn't be having the problems with disease and poverty and exploitation that they were having. And socialists, of course, thought that was paternalistic and that the real problem was capitalism. And I definitely agree with that. But the reality is that the drinking culture around here was actually really intense. And it would have been good if, as a community, we'd reflected on that. Instead, what happened is that white socialist men leaned into this masculine, hard-drinking persona in opposition to the female-dominated temperance leagues. So this kind of Jimmy Barnes, Blenny, Flanny, moustache, working-class man, footy shorts, etc. vibe. Well, that definitely feels familiar, this way of defining the working class through these subcultural affectations instead of, I suppose, material experience. It doesn't leave a lot of room for anyone else. It's so often a way of making women, migrants and people of colour invisible in the working class and in the labour movement. And it makes entire industries invisible as well, keeping the figure of the worker to a shrinking set of old school blue collar jobs, while exploitation in cleaning, hospitality, care work, call centres and pretty much everywhere else doesn't get the same romanticised attention. Yeah. And that kind of association of working classness with this hypermasculinity is, I think, one of the reasons why homophobia was such an effective line of attack against people like Moira James. And in the same way, white labour activists worked hard to associate working class identity with whiteness. Yeah, if we keep going up Leeds and hit Barclay Hopkins, there were a lot of Chinese businesses here that were prosecuted under the Shops and Factories Act in the late 19th and early 20th century. The act came through in 1896 after a lot of lobbying from white labour activists who basically argued that all Chinese businesses were sweatshops until that got enshrined in law. The act defined a single Chinese person as a factory. Even white people recognised it was pretty unfair, like obviously that's not really about worker exploitation. In 1902, Ming Sing, a Chinese guy who had a laundry on Hopkins Street near the corner of Leeds, was charged because he was ironing late on a Friday night and the act said he couldn't work past 5pm. He tried to say that he didn't work on Mondays and Tuesdays, but Fridays were always busy because he had to get everything done for the weekend. It's basically the worst of both worlds, right? Being a sole trader, but not being able to work your own hours. Anyway, the judge was sympathetic, but Ming Sing still had to pay the fine and costs. 
Another part of the anti-Chinese movement was the idea that Chinese men were a sexual threat to white women, and specifically that they might try and lure white women into sex work. But also there was a lot of this kind of weird, lurid language flying around that implied Chinese men were kind of gay. Yeah, it's that undifferentiated sexual transgression again, right? Like, in the 1800s, the anti-Chinese rhetoric really draws from every well. So because most of the Chinese migrants were men, you see this stuff like, ooh, what do these Chinamen get up to together? Alongside panic about protecting white women. So whether or not the sex is paid, whether or not it's consensual, it doesn't really matter because it's all still miscegenation. There's this article from the Footscray paper in 1887 titled The Yellow Agony, and it says that Chinese men's want of moral training is such that they have no objection to clubbing together and maintaining one frail female in semi-luxury but sickening debauchery. They managed to make it sound pretty good, to be honest. But you still see most of the same arguments today, right? Just with some bits rearranged. Yeah, I do actually think it's quite interesting how it's been rearranged. Like these days, Chinese and East Asian men are often desexualized. White nationalists have transferred that sexual threat onto black men and Muslim men. And Asian women are represented as kind of inherently tied to the sex trade, whether as trafficking victims or just garden variety gold diggers. That stereotype has faded a little now, compared to when I was growing up, but it's definitely still lingering. And then on the Shops and Factories Act too, Australian trade unions still use faux concern for migrant workers to frame them as a threat to Australian workers, to real workers. Which is also interesting because that's exactly the attitude Moira James came across when she was arguing unions should support equal pay for men and women. So fundamentally, Trades Hall Council, the peak trade union body in Victoria, saw their role as protecting men's jobs, and working women were a threat to that. Trades Hall only supported equal pay when it became obvious that it wasn't possible to keep women out of men's jobs entirely anymore. But they framed it as about protecting women, too, from rough or dirty jobs. What a lot of these tensions seem to be about is who has the right to be thought of as a worker rather than a threat to workers. And that threat is often described as a sexual threat. Footscray, for most of its history, was an industrial centre, and people took a lot of pride in that. It was a big part of the community identity. It still is, to an extent. So this is a place where tensions over who belongs here, who's respectable, often take the form of who is part of the working class. That's definitely still a tension. At the moment, I'm a freelance writer, which is a strange situation because even though there's a giant glaring power imbalance between me and most of the media companies I write for, I'm supposed to negotiate as if I'm a business and they're my clients, effectively as if I'm a factory. It's really hard to organize as freelancers for a billion reasons, but I think one major barrier is the idea that writers aren't working class, as if we get paid in cultural capital. Which, of course, just means that only rich people get to be writers. Yeah, I've had some similar experiences. So often people will say, ah, Liz, you're very middle class. You're an ex-academic who's read a bit of Deleuze. Um, And then the same people, once they learn that my dad was a plumber, that I grew up in the western suburbs, that I know how to hold the hammer, they'll be like, ah, I see, I was mistaken. You're, in fact, working class. I don't think 
either of those things are really what class is about. I think class is mostly about money and how you make it. Most people rely on work or welfare to survive. That's what was originally meant by the term working class, right? People who have nothing to sell but their labor. People who have to work. And we have more in common with each other than the people we might be working for. It's beyond disappointing. It's actually just tragic the way that this narrow thinking around the working class can foreclose possibilities for solidarity across gender and race and different industries and ways of working and, of course, across borders. Work is more and more casual and more and more global, so we're doomed if we can't figure out how to reach across. Which is basically why we did this project on Footscray's history. Because we're big communists. We are, we're big communists and we believe in solidarity. And there's so much potential for solidarity across difference in places like Footscray. But to get there, we have to acknowledge the ways we've fucked each other over so we can move beyond those divide and conquer politics and focus on the real enemy, focus on our shared enemy. And who's our shared enemy, Liz? People from Yarraville. It's like, who do you think they are? You know, and everyone's like, what will we do when this is over? And everything is like it was before. We will be walking round on clover instead of sleeping in the bed of...